I mean, I, I just wanted to propose, like, let's take 20, 30 seconds to just sit with our bodies. Yeah. Hi, this is Simon Simona von Sarlos, and welcome to the Asterisk Conversations. And today I am joined, and I'm so excited to be joined, by poet Pamela Sneed. Sneed is the author of Imagine Being More Afraid of Freedom Than Slavery, Kong and Other Works, Sweet Dreams, and her most recent book, Funeral Diva. Funeral Diva was described by the New York Times as a mix between memoir and poetry, a coming of age during the AIDS epidemic in New York City. She asks, who takes care of the caretakers? We spoke before the celebratory review in the New York Times came out, and we spoke maybe two days after the U.S. elections, and there was no certainty yet of who was going to become president. If we talk about ACT UP, we are talking about the US-founded but international organization addressing the AIDS pandemic. I love Pamela Sneed, and I hope that either you already love her work, or after this conversation, you start reading her. Enjoy. Hey. Oh, we're here. So I already said congratulations on your book. Um, you know, Diva. Mm -hmm. I think the first time we met was actually your other book presentation, which was Sweet Dreams, mm -hmm. which was already in 2018. Right. Which is kind of a quick turnaround from one book to another, I guess. Mm -hmm. But then also, Funeral Diva has been in the process of writing for almost 20 years, I believe. No? Right. Well, some of the pieces were started, you know, 20 years ago. And I mean, they've morphed over time. But I mean, a lot of the book has been written in the last two or three years, too. Yeah. Yeah. And also even in the last few months, writing about COVID. Right. Um, writing about George Floyd. Right. Um. Yeah, I mean, I will start us off with asking you or explaining a little bit maybe what the book is about, if that's even possible. Mm -hmm. And then I just figured a way to approach this amazing book of poetry, uh, which of course cannot be paraphrased, right? Um, mm -hmm. But a way to approach it maybe, I imagined it, um, is in coincidence with an author that you also cite, Saidia Hartman. Mm. Um, you cited uh, Lose Your Mother. Mm -hmm. So maybe like we can speak more on commemoration, mm -hmm. which I felt was this book is a practice of commemoration. Mm -hmm. um, and I really, it really reminded me of how also Saidia Hartman's work is more, of course, in the academy, mm -hmm. uh, often seen as theory work or mm -hmm. history writing. Um, but she also used the 
autobiographical example. Mm -hmm. And I felt that your work is in a similar fashion or in a similar lineage mm -hmm. with Hartman's work. And that's an honor. I admire her so much. <laughs> I figured that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe to start first with the with the title. Um, but I just wanted to tell you that about commemoration, because I think mm -hmm. it's a way to enter in, in what you are doing. Right. And maybe to speak about your book, not so much as, a, as poetry, mm -hmm. but as a way of... Uh, reforming, molding history, memory, and what it means to commemorate with art, but also a rewriting of, or maybe a reformulating of what history is, right? Right, um, well, there's the, you know, there's the his story, right? And so, you know, those of us who are artists or whatever, and feminists, you know, thinking and queer and all those things, I mean, we're We're trying to create her stories, right? Um, mm. Because history is has, you know, I mean, again, it's told from an action pointed, you know, standpoint. It's like, you know, he came, he went in, he conquered. You know, we know emotionally nothing of what has occurred. Um, so her story is a, is a totally different kind of rendering. So uh, I definitely feel like I'm engaged in her story, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess that also really relates to the non-linear way that you write, right? Um, a sort of almost a rapid flow of different associations right. that come in one poem and, what, and, mem and a memory that, like, it's almost like a drag, you know, you drag in all these different memories in, in one memory. So you right. take away this idea of having to have a concrete, clear, linear storytelling. Right. I mean, that's like, I guess that's where I'm being considered experimental. Like, I don't think of myself as an experimental artist, but I mean, maybe that's, I definitely feel like uh, an innovator and I feel like a pioneer, but I don't necessarily like relate to the term experimental. You know what I mean? Um But uh, but that's what I've been called. And like the mainstream like has had a hard time like with my form um, in the sense that, um, you know, they think I don't know what I'm talking about or that the story isn't on track or, you know what I mean? So so it's not traditional storytelling, you know, which I'm very happy about. But then people who are like ready for it understand that that it's very collage. You know, it's it's a collage. Um, it's very much a, a tapestry. I'm taking different threads and I'm kind of weaving them together. So I feel like the association or the parallel is definitely a visual work, you know? And history kind of supports that because there's like a visual prompt where in the beginning I cross out history. There's a line through it. And that's like a visual prompt. And it was really funny early on. They kept asking me, did you mean to cross out history? And I'm like, yes, you know, because there's a joke. Well, it's not a joke, but at the end, I kind of rename history. Right. And so so it's a, you know, I'm not going to, you know, have a title as mundane as history. Instead, I'm going to call it, you know what I'm saying? 
And so in that, mm. there's a visual prompt, you know? So it's like, kind of like, you know, I mean, there are things like if they really let me do my thing, I mean, I would have arrows and cross outs and all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, but and yeah. And at the end, when you said that at the end you're renaming history, like how do you mean that? Well, I say, you know, and instead of a, a title, you know, called history, I'm going to say for me, Tina Turner and all black women survivors. Right. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, renamed the title, which is why I kind of cross it out in the beginning. I retitle it. You know, but you have to go through the whole story to understand why I've crossed out history, right? And it was it, it was interesting because one uh, interviewer asked me about that, and I was really happy because it's like, yeah, you know, that was like, you know, that's a subtlety, or you know, but that's me adding in a visual prompt. But um, yeah, I mean, like trying, like I'm trying to like duplicate, like ways of how we really think about things because we don't think about things in a linear fashion you know like everything's happening simultaneously you know um and so in that regard and then it's kind of like um you know there's some fun stuff too it's sort of like movie okey you know where i'm like i've got i've got film you know uh what is it film uh what is it dialogue in my head you know i've got scenes you know i've got bits of books i mean you know i've got my own story so all these things are kind of you know intersecting and um yeah and i suppose that that is more you know it's queer it's non-colonial you know what I mean? It's it's a different way. You know, it's like I think like Layli Long Soldier. You know, is a wonderful poet, mm -hmm. um, and also a visual artist. Like she starts things from uh, like I think we write from left to right, where she starts things on the right, and and I mean she's trying to do like a sort of non-dominant, you know, Western language to kind of reframe it. And I think in a certain way, not always consciously, but just, you know, by order of who I am, I'm trying to sort of reframe, um, you know, certain kinds of ideology, certain ways of looking at language. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also really why I was bringing up Saidiya Hartman mm -hmm. uh, and her writing and the way that she talks about historical archives and, and not using the archives that we know, right, which are the, the quote-unquote factual archives with right. data, right. but they're full of mostly death and especially black death. Mm. And it's not the kind of archive maybe uh, if Hardman is speaking, she doesn't want to reproduce this archive mm. because it's only telling a very limited side of the story. But if you're trained as a historian, as is Hardman, you, <laughs> in order to be counted as a historian or in order to be counted as somebody telling history mm. you have to follow that methodology and she is defying that mm. and i felt in your book in funeral diva especially you're doing that you're just practicing that you might not be theorizing it as sort of loudly as hartman is mm. um but then now when you're saying this about you know like using the the visual in the book at least that is how I read Funeral Diva, where I feel that there's an unearthing 
of what an archive is mm. through autobiographical example. Right. Well, there, there are two really important things. Like I'm trying to establish an archive for like black queer men um and lesbian poets like of the late 80s early 90s and there hasn't been really like a lot of comprehensive history it hasn't been told from the standpoint of a woman of color it hasn't been told from the standpoint of a lesbian right so it's like so i mean even in terms of like you know aids uh like i mean you know now that history is starting to you know be told but it's always from the standpoint of like white men so, you know, I've been excluded, you know, from, from telling that history. And then women, you know, how we've been impacted by AIDS and stuff like that. Like, I mean, these things don't really exist as books, right? And so, uh, and then, or we're sort of like, you know, a footnote or a token and like, you know, a white queer guy's like story, but it's like comprehensively, you know, I mean, I talk about like a lot of guys um, you know, and women, you know, who were decimated by the AIDS crisis, uh, and who have not been documented, you know, at all. And, um, and one thing that I really, um, identify with Sadia Hartman too, is that in the same way that I feel that, um, you know, black queer men, uh, and women have not been documented and documented of the late eighties and early nineties. It's also like slaves, you know, the history of slavery, right? So, you know, and lose your mother, Sadia Hartman, you know, is at Cape Coast castle. Right. And, uh, she has like, you know, which is a slave fort, um, in West Africa, right. In Ghana. And, um, and the bottom line is, is that, and that's also a site for me, right? And I have a different feeling about it because I actually, it was very transformational for me, but um, Sadia Hartman, you know, didn't like it at all. She had like a lot of issues. And I mean, again, it's like slavery tourism, you know, making a slave site, like a former jail, a prison, a graveyard, like making it a tourist attraction. So she had a lot of issues about that. And I understand those issues, but I, I, I still felt it was so rich and so important. And it really transformed me, you know, as a human being. But again, like we're looking at a history that has never been documented. You know, forget about history. No, history, history, nothing, you know? And like, you know, so literally in this country, for the longest time, up until this decade, the only story we really had was Roots. You know, like that's one family, right? And so for the history of slavery, but literally millions, millions, mm -hmm. you know, came through those, those prisons, right? So in that regard, like where are the stories of these people? They don't exist, right? So people are like, I don't want to hear anything about slavery. It's like, well, you haven't. You've never heard anything. So I felt the same way. I mean, there's a there's a piece, I think, in, in my book, Kong, where I said I've made two promises in my life. And one was at Cape Coast Castle, and the other was at, like, you know, the mm. gravesite of my friends. And that is that I would tell their stories, you know. Yeah. To phrase um, "lose your mother," to rephrase "lose your mother" quickly is that she goes as a she goes to Ghana and she visits indeed Port Almina and she 
um, she stays for quite some time and, and she talks about the expectation of going back home. And this idea of going back home is distorted, which in a way is, I think, another, uh, not to like make any artificial comparisons to, to your work and, and Hartman's, but in Funeral Diva, there's also a lot of questions of belonging, right? Mm. A question, and it's, it's obvious that it's obvious in the same way that it's about belonging in a country like the U.S. Um, it's it's present in belonging in a household which doesn't feel safe, um, and this question of home and and a need for home is continuously returning. Um, but something that you said when Hartman visited. Um, the slave ports. She she was under impressed, so to say, with the amount of tourism that was happening. Right. And in a way, but she, at the same time, I think she also writes how meaningful the experience is. And you also write about this kind of tourism in um, your poem Black Panther, mm. uh, responding to the movie. Mm. And as you were speaking, I was just thinking about how maybe what what this part of the tourism and and the sort of commodification of important memorial sites, which are not just memorial sites but sites of experience, mm. um, is so much about care. And about how what? to care for these places, mm -hmm. about care, mm -hmm. care, like how to care for these places, how to care for a history, how to mm. care for histories, her stories, let's say like that, um, instead of commodifying them, which, which seems to be almost the only way of approaching a his, a her story, right? Like if you want to gain visibility for a story, there's such an easy attempt to to commodify it, and I'm thinking about care because of your, because of what you write, um, in one of your poems when it's about um, black gay men who die of HIV, which of course come back in Funeral Diva, so much as your friend, um, and one of them says, "Who will care for a caretaker?" It's interesting, like this idea of like commodification. Um, I mean, one of the powerful things about like, you know, being marginalized in terms of telling this story for so long, you know, finally, like this, this generation is starting to look back on the, on the AIDS era and still like the New York times is like, you know, doing all these things, but, um, you know, all these articles and stories, but again, it's like predominantly white queer people, you know, who've been left to tell the story. Mm. Um, but the brilliant thing, you know, even though I've been kept out of, you know, through the literary establishment, through, you know, unconscious like segregation in queer communities, conscious or unconscious, um, because I had just such a passion, you know, for my friends and for that era. And it's really kind of how I came of age. Like there's nothing in it for me other than to tell my story. So there's something very pure about that, 
you know, like I don't, I mean, I've waited so long. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't have an agenda, you know, other than to tell the story, you know? And, um, and I think that that's beautiful, you know? Whereas, you know, like Ghana, like all these places that, you know, are establishing, you know, these slavery memorial sites and stuff like that. I mean, there's a dual purpose in the sense that they're trying to set up, you know, um, they're trying to set up an economy, right? And I mean, it's mm. interesting, even like in South Africa, you know, like apartheid was barbaric. And now it's like, you know, a big income, you know, in terms of mm. tourism, you know, going to Robben Island, you know, it's a big tourist attraction, you know what I mean? And um, even though, you know, I went to Robben Island, and it was just like one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. But you know, even still, so, you know, my agenda is not like making money, you know, my agenda is mm. just to tell the story of my friends, you know, and of my people. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's not really and, and because who will care for caretakers? Right. Right. This question, is it, did you feel that there was care for you as a caretaker or is this book a care for the caretaker? Like... Well, I mean, again, I was like marginalized, <laughs> you know, and like, I mean, I'm finally getting this book out and I mean, it's all, it's all good, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, I wrote a piece recently about Black Lives Matter and, um, and I say that, you know, Black Lives Matter only matters to, you know, if you don't know the people, you know, so it's like, you know, if you can like, uh, project everything onto, you know, uh, a trans person who's been murdered, a black uh, queer trans woman murdered, or George Floyd, or Breonna Taylor, like people that you don't know. And I mean, that's one hand, that's like really important. But then on the other hand, like in terms of the personal, you know, all this racism is still going on. Like, I, you know, I have a white friend who drives me crazy because she's always talking about like, you know, anti-racism, but uh, like she talks over me all the time, like that basically she doesn't listen, you know? So it's like, that's racism. You know what I mean? Like your, your narcissism and your need to be superior, like that needs to be re-examined. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, mm. Or even like, you know, you know, sweet dreams. Like I was given a really hard time by black lesbians, you know, and it's just kind of like, you know, but you see all these people, you know, on social media crying about, you know, what happened to Breonna Taylor, but here are opportunities in our own communities to treat each other with love and respect. And, um, and it doesn't happen, you know, so mm. You know, I mean, and I wrote something, I guess, on Facebook the other day, just with regard to the elections, you know, and everybody's like, oh, my God, those red states and there's so much racism. But it's just kind of like, well, look at our communities. I mean, who's on top? Who tells the stories? Who gets funding? You know, who has a house? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like most of the black, you know, queer, you know, lesbian artists that I know, you know, like don't have a retirement plan. You know, a lot of the white artists that I know, they have houses, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, 
and it's hard to say these things out loud because everybody's always like, it's them, it's them, it's them. But it's like, look around you. You know what I mean? How many times are you going to pick up like, you know, an art magazine and see another profile on another white guy or another white woman? You know, I mean, come on. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's just kind of like, yeah, and, yeah. and then you're like going Black Lives Matter. What should we do? Mm. You know? And so, mm. and so it's just, it's, it's, there's a lot we can do. You know what I mean? But we have to like kind of wake up. You know, so there's like, you know, there are like complicated things, mm. you know, like, you know, the TV show Pose, you know, which is all about, you know, Black, uh, transgender, um, yeah. you know, and I, what I was going to say is that Pose, you know, they duplicated, like they were calling around, you know, asking for advisors and, um, and I didn't see it. I mean, this is all hearsay, but like, you know, they were asking for advisors and they wanted to like, you know, duplicate, uh, act up's action in the church. And, um, and like a lot of white lesbians were called to, uh, to basically, um, consult on the show. But again, to my knowledge, you know, me as like a black lesbian, who's like, you know, pretty much immersed in that history, never got a call, you know, and then in uh, actually a friend of mine who was a part of um, ACT UP, Robert Vasquez, you know, who's black and Latino or Latinx, like, basically, he wrote on Facebook, he was like, you know, can't they pull from any you know, people of color, you know, activism, like, why do they have to keep glorifying like this white? And and so it wasn't even me who said it, you know, it was Robert. And I was like, Robert, you know, can we, you know, can we do something together to kind of get the word mm-hmm. out? And, um, and then he was like, well, I'm writing about it in my memoir and stuff like that. But again, like, this is like, here's a prime opportunity for this show to like, look at people of color and to look at our activism. And they chose like white activism. Mm. Yeah, which is also what your poem never again refers to, right? Like, I mean, this, this, this idea of never again I mean, it's also something that you see in the Netherlands. It's nooit meer, never again. It's the same words. It's always used when thinking about the Second World War. And many people in the in the Dutch context have written about how the Second World War is used as a as a disguise. Um, in particular, Dr. Gloria Becker, I should say her name, um, who has written about this, how how the Second World War as a trauma to Dutch and European society, white, especially European society, is being used to not talk about colonialism and its own role, especially considering the Dutch, of course, uh, in colonialism and uh, also in the transatlantic slave route. So this poem, Never Again, really hit home because there's never again um also in another like i knowing a bit of course of the u.s context but also very much in the dutch context there's never again is always being repeated and this what you're saying this this always this repetition right like this continuous repetition of injustice right 
Yeah, and the othering, and just sort of like, it's always somebody else, it's never us. I mean, we have to figure out a way to transform the personal and the political, you know? Mm -hmm. To transform, well, I mean, the personal is political, so like, you know, working inside as well as working outside, you know? Mm. But the the title, like, and, and the title poem, Funeral Diva, I mean, refers to that repetition, right? Like right. going to a um, funeral time and time again uh, of people who have died of AIDS and then becoming a diva. Like there's a play with glamorousness or right something that you know sparkling or some some sort of queer presentation right uh flaunting it right which is a a knowledge of repetition right yeah i mean it's lacking right yeah no that's brilliant like observation yeah 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 what do you do with that i mean i mean no no i'm not gonna ask it like that um I was going to say, what do you do with the knowledge of repetition if nobody is listening? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you keep saying it until, you know, somebody finally, like, pays attention. You know, I had, like, a woman, what was it, uh, a literary agent, like, my first one, and I believe she died recently. And, um, and she said, you know, Pamela, she said, like she said to me like 20 years ago, she said, you know, it's going to take a long time for people to get ready for you, you know? And uh, she was mm. right. You know, <laughs> until finally, mm. maybe, maybe we're at a, um, we're at a point, you know, I mean, that maybe like somebody, you know, like me telling history or whatever is, uh, is possible. You know, mm. and, you know, I mean, that's something that like I approached, uh, you know, in Sweet Dreams, um, just like talking about, you know, I mean, I had a shaved head, dark skin, shaved head, you know, like, I mean, I was like 18 years old, you know what I mean? And, um, mm. and so like way ahead of my time and like, I wanted to act, you know, and to model and people are like, no way. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like too radical, right? And then um, mm. and then you have like Lupita Nyong'o and like finally, you know, people who are like sort of like breaking through, you know? And so now in the commercials, you see like uh, black women with like shaved heads and, you know, it was a long time coming, you know? And a lot of mm. like, a lot of queer people um, didn't get any recognition. So the world um, maybe is starting to catch up, you know, maybe literature is starting to transform somewhat. I mean, I did read something recently where somebody said, as I've said, that I, I really feel like uh, it's just now like that the literature, you know, literary industry is starting to kind of respond to the times. Like, I feel like film has had to, and music has had to, but, you know, like literature is just like lagging behind. It was still trying to do something mm -hmm. like, you know, Shakespeare or something, you know? So it's only 
you know, again, in like the last like decade, you know, um, I was sitting in on the library journal because they had, um, they actually uh, reviewed my work and um, in like all the presentations were, there were so many uh, people of color and um, queers like on the on the literary you know uh, agenda and i was like wow this is so exciting i mean it's still not enough but it's just mm. kind of like look how long it took you know mm. and then i think about you know and something that i uh, approached in in sweet dreams again is like uh if i felt you know stunted in my life like you know like I mean, I was writing like really profound things, you know, in my twenties, like if somebody had put like the money behind me that maybe they put behind like, you know, Zadie Smith, you know what I mean? Who knew, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I'm not like trying to make it like, you know, me centric because I really feel like, like what about all the queers, you know, of every color before Stonewall? What about all mm -hmm. those artists? What about all that literary work that never ever made mm -hmm. it, you know? that never got to be born or never got to be realized or that was like, you know, thwarted because the world wasn't ready for who we are, you know? And so there mm -hmm. needs to be a lot of like, uh, those are crimes, you know, that's a crime, you know? And, um, mm -hmm. or even, you know, for the AIDS yeah. era, for like all these, you know, gay men, you know, to like disappear and they're, you know, and all we have is like a quilt or something, you know, what about their stories? Yeah. yeah. And when you're saying like putting money behind, right? Like who, who was rewarded for writing about poverty and in, in New York being poor, listening to punk music and, and sleeping around, um, people have, well, people, white men have been rewarded for writing about um, their suffering and their, their poverty, but it is a very singular story right. of suffering that is out there then. Right. Um, and it's materially rewarded, right? Like, right. Well, and also, you know, like the whole glorification of like ACT UP and yeah, and like, you mm. know, they're very, very important. But the bottom line is, is that like, that's still like licensing like white men, you know, to like, you know, and again, like people of color, we couldn't get arrested. You know what I mean? We couldn't like, you know, there's no way that you can mm. like, you know, your family, you know, has fought for you to like be here and be alive and you come to New York City and, and you get a record. You know, like you can't, you know, we couldn't get jobs from that. You know what I'm saying? So even like the idea of like, you know, fighting back or them being mm. arrested. I mean, it was still very like, it's still very privilege oriented because they could get a record and still get great jobs. You know what I mean? And still like, um, you know, it's like what happened in South Africa during apartheid, like so many of the, the teachers of color or whatever, they lost their livelihood forever. There was no coming back. And so in a way, just telling the story of like mm -hmm. ACT UP privileges white, 
you know, privileges white people, you know, and privileges white activism. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, so, you know, then you have to look at like what black activism looked like during that period, you know, and you can't say that we weren't active. It just had to be different. Mm. If you would describe what black activism looked like. Well, it was through the arts, you know, it was through speaking, it was through performing, you know, that, that was the activism, you know? Um, and so, you know, creating literature, you know, um, making, um, making books, you know, brother to brother, you know, and all these anthologies, that was the activism. That's what we had to do, you know, and then the poetry readings, you know, and every day, you know, mm. it could be, you know, there was like, uh, I don't know, like Audrey and Hattie Gossett and Jewel Gomez and Sapphire mm. and myself, and then Essex Hemphill and Donald Woods. And you know what I'm saying? So, you know, the gatherings, you know, these were protests, you know? So it bothers me that the protest that was, you know, that's been celebrated or the main narrative is of, you know, act up. Yeah, it's um, super important to tell. Relates very much to this artificial separation between the personal and the political, right? Like this idea of the art versus political action. Mm -hmm. um, and as you were speaking, it just reminded me that this question or it it, it it revealed to me that this question of well but what does poetry do and how is it politically uh, active or how does it change the world is actually completely a white centered question then like if we're if you were speaking about this this um, white activism that is centralized right that right propagates a certain idea of action right Right, exactly. Uh, and it's like Audre Lorde says that, right? In Poetry is Not a Luxury, mm. you know, where she talks about, like, you know, basically women's intuition, women's, like, feelings, you know, the erotic are all sources of power, right? And so in mm -hmm. that... Um, so again, like, what, as you were saying, like, what has been you know, sort of uh, ordained is, is white male ways of thinking and not, not the feeling realm, right? Which is women's, mm. like, which is women's, uh, you know, work or our, our intelligence, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and so in that regard, yes, like poetry is language and is naming, you know, and that, that is like, ultimately incredibly powerful and that that gives one the tools to survive right uh coming to voice mm -hmm. and i mean it's interesting because like thinking about like south africa like when i was there i think in 2011 um one of the interesting things is like how much 
poetry and art and all of those things were respected as activism. You know, like in the District 6 Museum, like on the floor, there are all these tiles of poems that are like written by people in the community. And, um, and they're really beautiful poems. And it's just sort of like, uh, or even, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela keeping Invictus, you know, in his, um, uh, I don't know, like, you know, in his belongings. And that's what he returned to every day. And that was his inspiration, you know, not to give up, right? And so mm-hmm. in that regard, like, I feel like other places have a much stronger sense of like the power of art, you know, but in a way, you know, um, like not saying that like feelings, uh, not honoring women's intuition and women's understanding and all of that um, is also like, is a form of like oppression, right? Um, Mm. Yeah, so yeah, and Audre Lorde says, you know, poetry is not a luxury, you know, and to name and Mm. to speak you know, that could be some of the most powerful stuff that you can do, you know. And um, mm-hmm. and actually, I gave a commencement speech at SAIC this year. And one of the things that I talked about was like, um, was artists as essential workers, you know, and like, no mm-hmm. one has really spoken about that. And the fact that, you know, everywhere I turn, like in the pandemic and everything, it's artists, like it's artists who rallied, it's artists who've like, you know, figured out ways to use Zoom, to engage people who've given their art, you know, every time I turn around, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a collector, like, so the bottom line is, is that, you know, every time I turn around, artists have like given their work, you know, given their services, everything, And it's us, you know, you know, uh, along with the doctors and stuff like that, who are basically leaders in the pandemic and saving people, you know? And so um, I think the role of art is constantly been downplayed, but it's, it's critical. I mean, you know, I've been taking to task kind of like these queer organizations that I've worked with because, you know... Uh, like I've never received, I mean, I've been an activist for, I don't know how long, you know, I've done so much work. I've given away so much work and uh, like, I've never been like recognized for my work. You know what I mean? By queers. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, Mm. I haven't gotten an award, you know, I don't have any like money, you know, like, Mm. I mean, and it's like really tragic. I mean, I've like learned how to like sort of, you know, uh, finance my own, you know, work. And maybe that's better because I'm like, you know, in the words of like Shirley Chisholm, I'm, I'm unbought and unbossed, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's a certain kind of autonomy that one gets, like when you don't get all that recognition, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe that allows for a book like Funeral Diva to come out, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so in a way, but I do think it's like, so again, you know, now we've got like, you know, like we're all, you know, really excited about like Stacey Abrams and stuff like that. But like the lesson is, you know, to like look around in your communities, like look at who's doing the work, look at who's doing the labor, you know what I'm saying? And like support them, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. like everybody's, you know, always waiting for somebody to become a celebrity, you know, Mm -hmm. So waiting for somebody, you know, from the outside to say that somebody is important, 
you know? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm making a bit of a switch here, but one of the elements that really stands out to me reading your work uh, ever since of getting in touch with your work, right? Like, which is only two years ago, um, but is an enormous erotic energy that comes from your poetry. Um, but it's not necessary. like it's not, I don't mean this in the sense of um, the themes or what is discussed being erotic, right? Like it's it's really the power of the words or the 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 urgency behind the language or behind or in the language, I should probably say. Is for you the erotic something like, is it something that you're consciously working with, working in? Well, certainly, you know, like the sense of like touch, like the tactile, mm -hmm. like, you know, um, like the feeling realm, you know, that I'm working in mm -hmm. is a sense of like the erotic. Uh, but, you know, just like overtly, like, you know, sexual stuff too. Like I always try to like have, um, like encounters, like it's really weird. Mm. Um, uh, like I had some like, you know, stuff about like lesbian sex in there and I don't know, for some reason it kind of like didn't make it in and, uh, I didn't notice like, but like my encounters with men like made mm. it in. And I'm not really, you know, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not sure how this all happened. But I also remember, like, you know, uh, in another iteration of the manuscript, like, um, I I was working with this one literary agency, and she was saying that, like, that my, uh, what is it, like, my talking about, like, sex with other women or something, like, was, was gratuitous. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't necessary. And, um, you know, I, and I don't like, I don't really understand that. Like, you know, <laughs> like, why would that, you know what I mean? Like, mm. why is that gratuitous? Or why didn't that make it into this book? You know, because like, there's this one encounter, like, I think in history where I say, uh, you know, like being with like a woman and like, you know, her, you know, being inside of me, you know, far down deep. Uh, and something her saying like your taste is like home to me, you know, and mm. it's like, what, like that's so graphic, you know what I mean? Like, why can't I say that? Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, when you say that, I mean, I'm reminded of that of a question that I had, <laughs> which might feel uh, weird in a way, but. I think it relates also because, of course, there's the the, the her story of HIV, AIDS, um, and all the erasure that happens with it. But then maybe it's because of this erotic energy. Um, when or how do you feel gay or queer or lesbian in writing? Is that something that, that matters for you? Like, because it's, of course, a political point of view and it's a political stance and it's a, it's a, an attachment and a proximity to an erased history. But there's also, as you do with Funeral Diva, right? Like there's a, a making something that's related to suffering or that's related to pain, making it joyous at the same time or making it glamorous. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm looking for the pleasure 
in how you define your pleasure in in writing and writing as a gay person or writing as a however you want to define it hmm well i think i mean my pleasure you know comes a lot from from humor you know mm -hmm. like uh whatever i've been like you know sort of narrating you know on my facebook page i've been narrating like a lot of like what's going on and you know i've got like some uh what is it, you know, I'm calling uh, the Trump show, you know, be gone with the wind, you know, and like, and, you know, and I've like set up all these scenarios and like, you know, in the beginning of be gone with the wind, like Trump's hair is running away from him. And like, you know, Melania is like bare chested with just her pantaloons, you know, and that's the opening scene, you know, and, uh, and so like, I have great fun you know, at that, mm. <laughs> you know, people are like, Pamela, stop it, you know, because like, you're, you're cracking me up. And like, and I'm like, don't say that because, you know, I'll keep going. You know what I mean? I'll never get off this thing. Because like, if you know, you start laughing at my jokes, you know, <laughs> that's it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so and like, that comes in like sidewalk rage. And it comes in like, so I think like, like, my humor, like, you know, in, in even mm. like funeral diva, I mean, there is a sense of like irony, which you pointed out earlier, you know, there's, there is some play, right? So it's just kind of like, even though it's very wry and ironic, so it's like, I'm going to all these funerals and I'm dressing up, you know, and I mean, in a way that's the lead in, you know, to kind of unveil the difficulty of what's beneath it. You know what I mean? So mm. I think like, I think that my humor kind of like speaks to a lot of pleasure. And then also like, you know, yeah, like sexual encounters, like, you know, I mean, I think I detail those things. Um, it's very important for me to, to have like queer experiences, queer history, all of that as a, and also as a black lesbian. I mean, all of those things are really important to me. Um, yeah and i'm i'm sort of proud of it like one of the things that like mm. a lot of, a lot of the blurbers said was that you know i take a lot of risks in the book and i'm not really sure what they're referring to as the risks you know what i mean um but i you know i wear that like kind of like a badge i'm so excited because it's like mm. i'm not making some kind of like mundane you know um you know, like just general kind of, you know, reading. I'm so glad that they said it's risky, you know, mm. um, yeah. that means a lot to me, you know, but I hope that mm. there's like, you know, pleasure in it. Like I even feel like, but I think it's interesting that like, even like a story like Isla, you know, where I'm kind of like being renamed and all of these things, like it still ends on a very pleasant note. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, mm. oh God, they took my name and, you know, and I'll never be the same, you know? Like, I feel like, mm. I feel like there's a lot of triumph, you know, in it, even mm. though it details a lot of difficulty. Like, I don't, I don't think like the book is like, just, you know, oh, oh, look at what happened. Isn't this just horrible? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think what makes it, um, what makes it interesting is the fact that, you know, beauty can come out of such difficulty. Mm. 
yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of smileys. So <laughs> there's definitely a lot of joy. There's a lot of hearts and a lot of smileys in my manuscript. And it also reminded me when you're saying about the risks um, that I almost felt like queer love propels you towards these risks. Like there's a there's a phrase in one moment in one poem that it says, it was my love for her and this her is a woman named Lauren. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my love for her that made me challenge my father, mm-hmm. which to me was so remarkable, this idea of what kind of a love is that, right? Like that that you you take that risk or you, you take that challenge or it propels you towards a courage and courage is also very important, it seems, in the book. Um, and the recognition of Audre Lorde that everybody starts as a coward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not something to be born with courage, it's something to be practiced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, you said Ayla, Ila, because Ayla. The, 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 Ayla, yeah, the name, this is a name change then. And it's funny because you, you describe it as, um, it sounded like Allah. So I thought it was Ila. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was wondering, maybe this is also the erotic, but I was wondering how your relationship is to gods or plural voices when when writing <sighs> to the spiritual can you say that again mm-hmm. to the spiritual yeah it depends of course how you want to call it and i kind of don't want to fill that in for you but do you feel guided by goddesses or gods or or like uh, haunted yeah. even yeah, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, most definitely. Like, I'm not really religious. And I mean, I really, but I'm spiritual. And I really consider, you know, art to be my my spirituality. Um, I definitely feel that it's a convening with other, uh, with other elements. Like, I think, I don't know if I say it specifically, in um funeral diva but it's just sort of like um that like being in ghana was the first time that i became aware of in a real way like the invisible world you know like that became like we're like the understanding that we're not alone you know Mm. the understanding that that there are other you know spirits or other things operating you know in this world like that, I think that was like a real spiritual transformation for me mm-hmm. because maybe, you know, maybe of course I had acted upon it. Like I feel like, you know, certainly as the poet, I definitely feel like I'm an interpreter. I feel like, you know, we move between worlds, you know, the visible world and the invisible world. You know what I mean? Like information is coming from a lot of different places, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely believe that, but. I don't think I really like understood the invisible world until, you know, Ghana, you know, because mm. it was just so powerful and like information. I got information that, you know, that is not about like a conscious, you know, thing. It's more, it's more about the heart, you know? Mm. And, um, and did it change your writing? Yeah. Well, it changed my writing in the sense that like, I think from the time now it's probably like 13 years or something like that, 14 years. Like 
there's never a day that I don't think of Cape Coast Castle. Like there's just mm. like in it and that site made its way into all of my work, right? Like all of my work. So that these are people, you know, I mean like that ancestral knowledge, that place, like so it became part of me, you know, and um and and you know, I was like talking to a tarot reader once and I didn't tell her about Ghana, but she kind of picked it up in my cards and she said, you know, on one of your journeys, you know, your ancestors traveled back with you and they're using you to speak. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just felt like, yep, that's pretty much what happened. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't, you know, I can't like, um, not trying to be, I don't know, like spooky or anything like that, but I just feel like that's what happened. Mm, I don't think that sounds spooky at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm not sure why, but it's taken forever for me to write this poem. I hope to remember all the pieces but I've developed a new condition, one that's come from age. I can no longer take the shit I once did. And there's a part of my condition that comes from gentrification and cell phone use, living amidst tech zombies and their general fear and hatred of POC. My condition is called sidewalk rage. It's kind of like road rage, but it comes when I'm walking down the street and there's some millennial who has just moved into the neighborhood who thinks it's theirs, a white girl who in broad daylight feels a dark presence walking behind her. It's me minding my own business and she gets so panicked and paralyzed she stops walking and holds her purse. With my new condition, I yell, if you don't want to live around black people, get the fuck out of the neighborhood. She is shocked. Or in another scenario, you see random white women on their phones standing in a doorway completely blocking it because, you know, only they exist. And you're like, hello, hello. Yes, all these years I thought I was still a small town girl. And then suddenly with my sidewalk rage, I'm a bonafide New Yorker. Like the ones you've seen on bicycles banging on the hood of a taxi cab that tries to cut them off. My person with sidewalk rage is a character of their own. Where once I was silent. Recently, I confronted a man who was blocking my path, crossing the street. He had his head down and almost rammed into me. I sucked my teeth louder and shouted, hello, hello, move. He was so angry, I confronted him and yelled, suck my dick. I started to yell something profane, but I stopped myself. And then I was in the subway going downstairs and a white man rammed into me on the phone. My sidewalk rage kicked in and I thought for a second to sneak behind him and kick him down the stairs. That's my sidewalk rage. I stopped myself. I don't know who this person is in me who would never speak up for herself, was always soft and vulnerable, who's been at various times pickpocketed, blasphemed, body slammed, ransacked, ridiculed, who now has a voice, who now lets rage show, who couldn't express herself, has now become all angles and sharp edges. Thank you so much. I was thinking about you as a teacher because you have a lot of students or former students who love you very much, uh, it appears, from what I can see <laughs> online. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about you teaching um, 
and and them learning lessons. But I was also thinking about a future world. And I wanted to close off with a question that relates to this future world and ask you what what is present now that you wish would be unlearned for a future world to exist? Oh my God, all the isms, you know, racism, <laughs> classism, uh, you know, sexism, uh, misogyny, uh, class, I said classism. Yeah, all the mm. isms, you know, have to go, mm. you know. Um, I don't know, but I had like, you know, once I said to a group of students, like, I was like, imagine if all the stores, you know, instead of all the stores, because like everything in the world is a mall now, right? But, um, but if all the stores instead, like had, uh, were art centers, right? And, um, and I just said this kind of routinely, and this is kind of like blew my students' minds. <laughs> mm. You know, I just thought like, because this is how I think, you know what I mean? But imagine, like, how would that change the world? You know, that like you could mm -hmm. just go out and like maybe see, you know, some paintings and then it was, you know, you stop and you would make a painting or you stop and you do a collage or, you know what I mean? Like, how would that, yeah. how would that change our world? You know, and that's the kind of world that I would like to see. And then in I Can Breed, you also read, um, so if we are always the treth to whom or where do we turn for protection? Do you have any dream of protection or like an imaginary of a protection or what, who or what this would be? Well, Thinking I don't know, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, the other day because of the election, like I was just so scared. I couldn't get a, I couldn't get out of bed, you know? And, uh, cause I thought Trump was winning and like right now mm -hmm. Biden's ahead and everything. And so I'm really hoping that that holds. But, um, but I couldn't get out of bed. I was just like, oh my God, I'll just, you know, I just can't imagine four years of this guy. I, I, mm. I just feel like it would just like, it would just gut the country. I mean, he's already gutted it, but I just, that, I don't think we could sustain like four more years of him. And, um, and so I couldn't like, I couldn't get out of bed, but then I, I had registered for a, uh, for a drawing class, <laughs> for a portrait drawing class <laughs> and figure drawing and like, that's what got me out of bed, you know? Mm. And I felt like I was such a nerd, but I really got excited about it. And I like sat outside, you know, I was like in the park and I just sat there on a bench and I was like kind of drawing, you know? And like, that was like my happy place. And so more and more I've turned to art, you know, all kinds of art as, as a thing that that's kind of like my sound, you know what I mean? And, mm. um, and I was just speaking to a friend of mine, like she's like kind of like my art uh, supporter. I met her in the pandemic, you know, and that, uh, and that basically, you know, she wanted to offer services for artists, you know, at no cost, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, she was a former student at SAIC, but like she, we didn't, you know, she wasn't in my class, but uh, so we, we met. And, um, and she's been like a really great supporter of mine, you know, and I talked to her about like that feeling of like a lack of protection and stuff. And she's like, well, I love you and I protect you. And I feel that with her. So, you know, slowly there are things coming to pass, you know, and it was like really funny. 
because somebody like read my book and, you know, and they wrote on like Instagram, they were like, I love you, Pamela. You know, it's, uh, it's like, you know, so maybe some of the like, you know, creepy crawlies are going away. <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. a meeting you know more I mean and yeah and you've been like a tremendous support and like just really um yeah and I'm starting to yeah I'm starting to meet more people but you know it's kind of like I always chose people like my family you know that were very narcissistic mm. and not not very caring and so mm. you know I'm making different choices so maybe you know I'm more open to the new yeah Mm, I love that you say that you met somebody in the pandemic, which almost makes it sound like a, a space, the pandemic. Um, and it, it also reminds me when you say love and, and hearing I love you, that it that it is a space of protection. It, it reminds me of today's speech by Cori Bush in St. Louis, the elected congresswoman who said, if you remember one thing or if you if you know one thing, know that I love you. Mm -hmm. And um i love you and therefore i care that you have shelter that you have food on the table that you are not shot by police people and it was just you know like hearing this word love and i love you in a political speech just to me at least just reminded me of the enormous absence of that yeah i was just thinking about uh, yeah. Um, because I teach a class online, you know, human rights and art. Mm. And one of the things that I was thinking to do, because uh, we've been reading a lot of material, but I wanted them to go back to Martin Luther King's like letter from a Birmingham jail. And um, because he talks about love, you know, mm. and, um, and it's funny because that was like something like I read, you know, in college days or whatever, but like, like thinking about that in the absence of hope because we were like reading i mean i think all the material is hopeful like we were reading sophia bakari uh you know the world before and um what else uh angela davis you know women race and class and um but i'm also i want this class to be focused on interventions and solutions but you know at some point i was like oh i need to like i need them to be reminded of love yeah love in the absence of hope wow thanks i'm gonna put on my camera so to to wave to you at okay. least <laughs> uh... thank you so much mm. Have you attended any digital funerals i was thinking <laughs> well i went to the one for uh larry kramer you know mm. And because uh, he died, I think, like a day after or two days after George Floyd was murdered, you know, and so I was connecting those dots, mm. you know, because it was interesting to me that I had gone through the whole funeral of Larry Kramer, which was really powerful, but no one talked about George Floyd, you know, and it's like, but those two are so, you know, critical. So there, there is me as the intersectional queer person, you know what I mean? It's like, well... You know, Larry Kramer is somebody important to me. Why wouldn't they talk about George Floyd? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Also, thank you so much for your book. Um, I hope I told you enough how great it is. Thank you, Simone. I'm happy to see you. <laughs>
For this episode, I'm so happy that the voice of poet Jolyn Phillips can interweave with poet Pamela Sneed. At the asterisk conversations, we usually ask a maker in the Netherlands to respond to the conversation. Jolyn lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. It felt really fitting to invite Jolyn, not just because of Pamela's connection to South Africa, but also because I met Jolyn last year at Writers Unlimited Festival in Den Haag. Jolyn immediately commented on my name, which I write Simone, with the E between brackets, the E at the end. Ungendering, degendering, double gendering my name. We had a really nice conversation and we continued to be in conversation. Jolyn Phillips is the author of Ching Chong Cherries and her new book Bintang. For those who do not know her already, please meet Jolyn Phillips. I saw my father's brother changing flavors in the last year of his life. It was the last brother my father buried. My mother doesn't go anymore. The last time at his second eldest brother's funeral, whose name was the exhaustion of my grandmother's naming children, she left out one letter of the surname. She ran out of disciple names and Ma says, never marry someone with a disciple name, they bastards like your father. My grandmother died before my father was 10, when her husband died the year before. My father grew up calling his brother uncle and his little brother calling him uncle and I have a cousin two decades older than me that I call auntie. His sister carried my cousin when her mother carried her brother and they lent each other breast milk. So when I saw my uncle changing flavors from a milk rooibos tea to the stench of cow dung my family calls the ape, I remember I wasn't allowed to put my hands on his forehead. It's bad luck if you don't. I was glad to not touch death that day. I noticed that we were using the same leaflet as last time. We have a lot of Jameses in our family. And no one really looks at the date. Other than to keep it on their heads when it's raining. Or fan themselves when the sun is baking outside. At the after tears, a son-in-law got stabbed. My cousin broke her ankle in her aunt's grip. My aunt's neck was in her middle brother's hands. And her eyes shouted, but no one listens to eyes in my family. Not even when they are shut. We are used to it. People die. We sing. People die. We cry. And tomorrow we go to work so that they can make up for their funeral cover at the end of the week. My father's brother died with a used eulogy. For the gossiping bereaved, us children learn the hymn, He died of the lover. Every flavor has an illness in our family, and we know it by heart. I had to stop going to funerals because I laughed when my mother passed out and I carried her off. She had just buried her son. All the cousins had to wear bow ties like they were working for a pizzeria. My uncle was funny and my aunt laughed afterwards that he used to steal her dresses. My family, I remember, was standing at a distance that day and they didn't open the casket. And everybody was glad to take their handkerchiefs out of their mouths. 
And when I stabbed the cross into the grave, after Lady Di hugged that child in the hospital, people started to touch the foreheads of those with the you can go to jail for calling someone. My father recently celebrated his birthday. He's the first person in our family's history to reach the age of 60. Saying to the evening, will bury me when all my pallbearers are dead. I've been going to funerals before I could knock. I've been going to funerals before I could mock. Long walk from democracy. My professor told me, democracy only works if you have slaves. Knowing her stories of marching with students at UWC, knowing her stopping her car in the middle of Moradam or Robert's Ubuque Road. Here she got smashed and grabbed. She topped her Toyota Corolla to help an anxious horse over the street. But more casual, he would ask, Who are you? I am stationed and unyielding. I smell Belleville from inside the car. Goat, cow and horse dead. Smell of smoke and clicks of horse carts. The sound of waste pickers rollerblading down the main road, wishing their bathtubs. The taxis stealing a lane. I have never been late for work with a taxi, but I've always known I could have died that day. You get used to the roadkill, the smoke coming from burning shacks, and burnt necklaces are like an alarm, or the splendid splinters of a motorcycle, and the lisbeak running out of the biker's head, and the sun makes it look like stargazing. This all used to be farmland before it became Belleville, she says. In the 1700s, the war took place right there next to the Lisbeck River. Dutch East India Company against the Genoquas or the Chochoquas or the Chochoquas. Chochoquas, I say. I know it as observatory with the famous mental hospital Falkenberg. I know Gonoma, Doman and Urusoa's people working in the Freeburgers' kitchen after the war. I know why it's called Kitchen Dutch. Potatoes peeled and chicken slaughter, bread kneed and the remains fed to the dogs. And the OC today in the taxi is going to Constantia Nick with throttle and bottle in the morning. Or, yes, madam, has changed to, yes, missus. And domestic worker has changed to employer and the kindness you can take home. Leftovers from last night's dinner party. You smell the deviled eggs in the taxi. About Falkenberg, Prof says, you know, one year all the patients escaped and some of them were never located. I saw her crossing the street and getting into the car. We continue listening to Beethoven's. Was glad for the lift. It suddenly clumps loose in my head again. Democracy, or Rainbow Nation, or the World Cup 2010. The string of people standing like dominoes 
in the 94 election to vote. I was four years old. My passing. She is standing next to the post box, my mother. I have never seen her that real, that bare, that life. Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word apartheid. And I'm afraid that has been misunderstood so often. What does it could the etymology of demo mean nowadays? Perhaps much better be described of as a policy of good neighbourliness. Accepting that there people. are differences between people. See, I know it to be the diluted odour of self-existence. And you have to acknowledge them. For At the same time, the stingy you people. Can Live Five. together, aid one Autocracy. another, but that it can best be done when you act as good neighbors always do. Yesterday I read Professor van der Rosse's Up From Slavery. He says there can be no slavery where there are no nomads. You need community for that. You need people to stay. And I ask but what is the diaspora then? He has passed and I can't ask him. I've never been to Robben Island. Every time the weather doesn't play along and I'm happy for the refund and the real excuse. I travelled overseas to the Netherlands in 2017 for the very first time to read my Afrikaans poetry translated to Dutch, and everyone's eyes were stargazing at the Dutch translation, and I can only assume they listened to me. I held on to my passport like a gun in a war. If I failed at locating it in my bag, gunshots went off in my hands. If I got lost here, or I wear my hair natural and my clothes second hand to fight against capitalism, but this look makes me look homeless everywhere. All the while, I'm trying to explain to the organizer, I do not speak African, I speak Afrikaans. And I confuse her when I try to explain the difference. Or lost in translation. <laughs> A prayer for little miss. Today, Mrs. Rapper found out that she couldn't have children. She was consoled by my two aunts. I was standing in the door looking at the intimate spectacle. This moment made Mrs. Rapper ask for a prayer. My aunt asked with her eyes, Please fetch me the olive oil. I obeyed out of fear of insulting the Trinity. I prepared the olive oil on a saucer, placed it on top of a cup of hot water. I took a piece of coal from the fire and placed the mirror on there. I did this prayerfully, praying into it further misfortunes for Mrs. Rapper. I handed it to my aunts. They prayed blessings into it. I prayed that God remained on my side. I bowed my head and asked the misfortune of Mrs. Raper to touch me too.
I am tired of protecting myself, and I don't think I can rest knowing that she will do what she did to me, or my daughters, or her daughters. After prayer, my aunts called me aside and said, We prayed what you asked for. This day will die with Mrs. Raper, not with you, little miss. Thank you for listening to the Asterisk Conversations. This was already the second episode of the Writers Unlimited podcast. The Asterisk Conversations is an initiative by me, host and editor Simon Simone van Sarlos, editor Ilonka Reintjens, and Writers Unlimited. With thanks to the authors Pamela Sneed and Jolene Phillips. And thank you so much, our amazing editor Jurgen Gario Unum JG. You can find the transcription of the podcast online at the Writers Unlimited website. You can also use this transcription to check some of the references Pamela and I talk about. If you have comments or questions, get in touch through Writers Unlimited or my Instagram page, S. Von Sarlos. S. V. A. N. S. A. A. R. L. O. S. And don't forget to listen to a little bonus that we're putting out with Pamela Sneed reading her poem, Black Panther. <laughs>